uh, is the dynamic nature of the scripture whereby uh, the scripture is so full of truth that you can take any prejudice or opinion or any point that you want to make and, and find a way by manipulation of the scripture, which is called isogesis, uh, to make any point you want. If you've heard me say before that the Holy Scripture is a sacred story, which is a love story, uh, it was not written to prove anybody's prejudices or points. Uh, and anybody who begins to try to prove their own position vis-a-vis uh, -vis a social issue or uh, a theological issue, sometimes it's very dangerous to do that uh, because you can make almost any point you want <coughs> to the point. Um, that it's both a love story and you can manipulate scripture to make your point. And as an introduction to what I want to talk about today, you remember the story of the young cleric, the vicar of a country parish, country mission that is, and uh, lo and behold in the midst of a, a rather old congregation one Sunday appears this beautiful young woman. And so being like most priests called to be an evangelist, decided <coughs> decided like the hound of heaven to pursue the soul of this lovely young woman. And so he went out to make a parish call. A parish calls for most clergy the best possible parish call is the one where you go and ring the doorbell and nobody's home. <laughs> and you can leave your card and you get credit for having been there without having uh, to listen to the complaints about the dirty restrooms and the hymns that you can't sing. <clears throat> so he rushed out getting her address on a card and rushed out to her house and he knocked on the door and there was no answer. So he left his card and he put simply Revelation 3.20. For those of you who don't know, <laughs> Revelation 3.20 reads, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat supper with them. By return mail, he got his card back, and under Revelation 3.20 was written Genesis 3.10, which reads, I heard the sound of thee, and I was walking in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. There's no business like church business. <laughs> we have fashioned uh, some stories in the last few weeks concerning <clears throat> Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses. Now I want to take those five patriarchs and fashion uh, permission uh, that we create, beginning today, a generation of human beings who are not addicted to perfection. 
Now that is, uh, I think, the greatest addiction in this uh, society is the addiction to perfection. And the reason we get addicted to food and drugs and alcohol is because we're not perfect. And so we try to fill our imperfection or our emptiness with something else. And then, of course, the problem with false spirits is that they do uh, momentarily save or they do momentarily enthuse. That's why we call whiskey spirits, is because they make us feel uh, like we're full. And that's why we eat too much food, is because there's nothing greater than being satiated because the rest of our lives appear from time to time so empty, particularly when we compare ourselves to patterns uh, fashioned by other people that we will never fit. Now, each of us has a variety of characters in our Nurture series. Uh, we remember talking about how each person has within one's own personality a whole traveling show, a whole family of characters and voices and personalities. And that's the gift of the complexity of personality, is to have uh, many facets of our personality. And so we are like those before the uh, breakdown of the bicameral mind, where we had two lobes that spoke to each other. Sometime I long for those days, and some of us still live in them, where we hear voices on one side of our, our brain lobe speaking to the other side. In those days, we were much more comfortable with visions and prophecies and dreams uh, because they came from someplace else. We now know that those voices are a part of us. Now, if you are like I am, I continually hear a lot of voices telling me what it is that I am to do and to be. They all sound like my mother and my daddy and my teachers and my preachers from years gone by. Uh, most of them tend to be authority figures. And each of those authority figures has an opposite voice that sounds very much the same. And so <clears throat> I am like the cartoon figure. Every time I'm faced with an issue or a decision, I hear two voices with contradictory messages, and they're like that little devil and that little angel in the cartoon that gets on your shoulder and whispers in your ear, go ahead, it's okay, and the other one's saying, you'll go to hell if you do. Now, that's why we basically all are schizophrenic and live with split personalities, and it's because we have contradictory messages within us. Now, the tension created <clears throat> gets our attention, and it is an existential anxiety that moves us to make decisions and be creative, not to be perfect. As I have said time and time again, the worst legacy you can give your child is to be a perfect parent. The worst legacy that you can give the world is to have to have been perfect. What you do there is you make an incredible impression on people, but it's much like sticking your fist into a sponge. When you pull it out, there was never anything real there. There's a matrix, and that is if you're going to make an impression, you might as well make a deep one and make it real and believable so that when you pull yourself away, there is a matrix of who you've been and where you've been. I would much rather have a, a life that was real than a life that was perfect. A real life is one who is uh, uh, willing and able to go ahead and uh, experience life and reflect upon it. Now, the reason I'm on this roll this morning is looking at the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses most particularly, the, murder who ran, the murderer who ran away from his responsibility, went to work for his father-in-law, was a wandering around in middle age in the desert of his life, thinking to himself, well, <clears throat> I need uh, something 
uh, to excite me. I need something that will turn me on. I need something to break this ennui that I am feeling. If you don't know what ennui is, it's French for blah. In a lecture I do on categories of sin, I was talking about ennui sounds so attractive, you know, you've heard me say, something you would invite somebody up your room for. <laughs> I think if I ever invited somebody to my room, that's what I, I would give them was a little ennui. I wish I had thought of that when I was in New Orleans several years ago in the middle of the night. There was a knock at the door, and I went to the door, and there was a beautiful one, kind of a, a little overdone. <laughs> and I opened the door, and, and she said, Are you Bruce? I said to her, Genesis 3.10. <laughs> I could have invited her in for a little ennui. Ennui! Ennui is this emptiness about which we speak that Moses was probably feeling in the desert. The desert is a metaphor for uh, one who is thirsty, who... Uh, looking for something in the uh, arid nature of his own existence, something to, as we say, light his fire, and the burning bush came. And so he went back, but it, before he went back, he had all these excuses about how inadequate he was, how he couldn't speak well, and why didn't he send somebody else? A thousand ways to say no. Uh, but Moses went back, and, and God actually and essentially said, it is out of this uh, real life that you've lived that you are able to relate really, to people. I think the worst credentials for uh, being a human being among human beings is to be perfect. Yes, I know our Lord Jesus Christ was perfect. The perfection that we talk about in terms of Jesus is not a judgmental perfection. It's an enabling Wholeness. The better word, I think, translation from the Greek about perfection is the word complete. Now, it has a different ring, at least in this society it does, and for those voices that I hear in my head that say, be perfect, if they would just say, be complete, I think I feel a little more comfortable about my journey and my risk-taking, and all of those things that I've broken through the years, making decisions, trying to be perfect. Trying to please those voices which are contradictory, and to please myself and please God, you know, is like the chameleon on the oriental rug. I mean, the ability to change quickly enough to meet all the needs of those voices uh, pulls one apart. It makes one fractured and broken. 
Everybody has his own nakedness about which he's ashamed. I mean, this is the beginning story in the book of Genesis. It is a story of self-consciousness, of, of awareness, which is a gift. I believe, uh, once again, that the fall in the Garden of Eden was a fall upward into humanity. Yes, it was a costly fall upward, and that is to be aware is costly. You know, the happy pagans are those who are unaware. I mean, that's the greatest sin is unawareness. And to be aware, you know, is a wicked gate through which you go. And that is, once you become aware, you can never be unaware. And if anybody becomes aware, they should get congratulations and condolence because now you carry a burden of awareness. Once you know something, you cannot not know it. And so we are called into awareness by our existential choices. And, and Adam and Eve made an existential choice which turned out to be an evil one, beguiling though. I mean, wasn't it maybe somehow within the imago Dei, the image of God, the intuitive, imaginative nature of human beings to hear just one faint whisper of a call that we should be as God? And that was a very tempting thing to do is to be as God. And God came back with a resounding voice saying, I'm God and you're not. And that's how the story is going to have to be. Well, there was a fall then upward into a, a sense of awareness about who it is that we're not to be. And we're not to be God and we're not to be the animals. And then this kind of infamous struggle of human beings discovering who it is that we are to be. And that comes evidently, and I'm speaking now as one who has much evidence. Evidently, it is out of making decisions, existential choices, and the reflection upon that, that we grow. And that is awareness, coming to awareness. But each of us is like Adam and Eve in that sense that there are things about which we're embarrassed, that we're ashamed, that we've done wrong, that we've broken, that we've made a bad decision about, that uh, we wish we hadn't done. Each of us has a trail of broken relationships. <coughs> Each of us has a trail of bad decisions that we carry around. One of the reasons that nakedness is a good metaphor is because there we stand all the blemishes and scars of a life lived of experience that we cannot hide from anybody. And so this is the nature of what it means uh, to be human. And one of the things that I love most about Scripture, and one of the reasons I get uh, impatient <clears throat> with those who try to prove their own points through the Scripture is because it's a story of the evolution of consciousness, the evolution of religious consciousness indeed, but also a story of the evolution of moving into responsibility through experience. And looking then at the great experience of our people where we will have a collective consciousness of ten best ways to live. There's no use going back over in every life experiencing the same thing over and over again. We have ten best ways to live. And then if you don't understand that, and if you can't <clears throat> follow the ten best ways to live, then we have another testimony that says you are loved without condition. And so that ought to free us to go ahead and live a life with some degree of freedom, some degree of confidence, an incredible degree of hope. And that's not to say there won't be cost and brokenness. There will be. Just read the story of your fathers and mothers. Read the story of Abraham, his impatience, taking history in his own hands. Isaac being duped by his uh, cheating son, Jacob, who cheated uh, his own father uh, by the voice of a mother complex. 
Uh, think about Joseph and his uh, egocentric behavior that got him in a pit and sold into slavery in Egypt. Think of Moses the murderer. Begin to reflect upon the experience of how Scripture uh, shows the nakedness of our character. It shows all the blemishes. It doesn't try to hide the reality of what it means to be human. And those who are most holy are those who are seeking wholeness. Now the problem with human beings, and using now the nakedness and being clothed as a metaphor, uh, maybe we could push it even to a form and content question, and that is uh, most of us are more concerned with the impression we make than with the impression we leave. In a sense, if we want to make a good impression, we want people to like us, we want people to affirm us and, and make us worthy. In order to do that, we live at the most superficial level and we leave no impression on history. I mean, it's the risk-takers, those who are able to pick up banners and, and take them and lead people, those who are willing uh, to go ahead and go into the dark places and the fearful places and the unknown places. Those are the people that make an impression on history and a bad impression on their peers. And so we're interested in making a good impression rather than a lasting impression. It's a wonderful, I don't know that it's wonderful, but it's an interesting book called Faith, Sex, and Mystery by Roger Gilman. And I'm reading this Lent. It's in the Cathedral Bookstore. It's a story of an uh, ethnic Jew who was converted to uh, Christianity, Roman Catholicism, uh, baptized into such, becomes religious Roman Catholic, and then drifts away from the church. <clears throat> Some very poignant, I think maybe even uh, prophetic words about the institution or the vessel uh, versus the theology or the truth. And the relationship between the form and the content runs all the way through our lives. Uh, from family to individual, from individual to individual's own internal life, with institutions and truth, uh, all of that form and content question is greater than a question of architecture. He writes, I remember that after I'd begun to be interested in Catholicism, I came upon St. Paul's definition of faith as the evidence of things unseen. One of those nice contradictions that uh, takes the dean of the cathedral places that he loves to go evidence of things unseen. And I thought that the contradiction ought to be especially appealing to those who love literature. In the same vein, I remember being excited by Charles Pegay's description of bourgeoisie mind as that which, whatever the person's social or economic class invariably preferred the visible to the invisible. I thought this the most acute and witty indictment of the materialist I had ever seen, unless it was Baudelaire's epithet, fanatics of utensils are enemies of perfume. Now those who are concerned about the vase I never smell the savory smell of the spirit. Those who are fanatics of utensils are enemies of perfume. If your goal, if our goal, is to present to the world a perfect image, 
then we will spend all of our time and energy uh, running around changing masks as fast as we can, uh, presenting to the world a perfect image, and yet <clears throat> inside we will be as a perfume bottle with no perfume. Now, I am not anti-materialism. As a matter of fact, Christianity is the most materialistic religion there is. That's a quote from William Temple, if you don't like, like it from me. <laughs> Christianity is the most materialistic religion there is because uh, God so loved the material, the world, uh, that he gave himself up for it. And it's an interesting, you know, when we hear that, John 3.16, it's a great embarrassment to me when I see that at football games and basketball games where you have John 3.16, some guys painted a, a sign as, as, as big as a field goal um, and put it at the back of the football stadium and says, John 3.16. Um, I think that puts uh, Jesus uh, right uh, at the level of, uh, of deodorant. I mean, it's not something that we advertise, uh, I, I, particularly when you realize that those who are really interested in pro proclaiming John 3.16, which is God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, those are the people who want to withdraw from the world and treat the world as bad, treat the world as evil, and we want to wall ourselves on, off and protect ourselves from it, and we want to be able to decide who's good and who's bad so we can only live with the good and not be tainted with the bad, and uh, everybody's going to hell but us. God so loved the world. If God so loved the world and only the Christians who are born again are going to heaven, then why uh, did God send everybody else to hell? It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make good sense to me, and it's not my experience with the God of love. Uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only son for the world, the whole world, the entire world, all the world. That's a materialistic religion. It says the world is not something to be afraid of, but something to love. You know, we've got a wonderful new straw man that we can take all of our repressed inferiority and all of those negative voices within us, and we've got a whole new, wonderful, anonymous straw person out there on which to project all of our evil. Thank goodness it's not a race of people anymore. It's now the secular humanists. I mean, that... That's wonderful to be able to take all of our darkness and all of our inadequacy and put upon the evil. You know, this world would be perfect if it wasn't for you. Don't you know that? The two presenting problems for the Navy chaplain, the sailors come into the Navy chaplain and every presenting problem begins with my wife, she, and my car, it. If it wasn't, if it wasn't for you, everything would be fine. If it wasn't for my mother and daddy, if it wasn't for uh, the fact that I was fat when I was small, if it wasn't uh, for, for the fact that I was never popular, if it wasn't for them, if it wasn't for you, if it wasn't for the secular humanists, this would be a great world. <clears throat> I'm also one who says anything that's fanatical is negative, particularly when they wind up burning and banning books. I think burning and banning books is always wrong. Well, and I don't want to prove that from the Bible. That just happens to be my prejudice. 
what I'm moving toward is a sense that, that our own imperfection, our own darkness, is better dealt with with awareness rather than projection. That just postpones dealing with your own dark side. And the scripture ought to give incredible permission for anybody to be aware of your own vulnerability, your own weakness, uh, of your own mistakenness, of your own brokenness, because that's what our heroes and heroines are about. As I'm fond of saying, every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. The single most important criterion for being a patriarch or a matriarch or a hero or a heroine or a saint, the single most important criterion is to first be a miserable sinner. Second, be aware of it. Third, don't blame somebody else for it. And fourth, turn around and try something new. I mean, it's a fairly simple formula unless you've got somebody else to blame. You know, I, I would be well. I've been lying on this pallet by this water for 30 years, and if somebody else would come and put me in the water, I'd be fine. Jesus says, you want to be well or not? Well, yeah. And he said, well, I'm going to call your bluff. Get up. Uh, do you want to be well? There are lots of a thousand ways to say no to wellness. There's one way to say yes, no way to say anything else. I will uh, go uh, deliver the people from, from Egypt, but I, I'm unworthy. God said, that's why I've chosen you, Moses. They'll believe you. <laughs> the only way, uh, uh, this is one of those hyperboles that I hope, uh, the only reason that I stay in the priesthood is because uh, I'm believable. I mean, if I, I mean, if I can do this, then anybody can. I'm not perfect. I am a sinner. As a matter of fact, <laughs> I mean, I'm, not, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to lie to you. As a matter of fact, I don't, I don't lie to you. I've lied before and I may again, but when I'm speaking publicly, I don't speak about things I don't believe. If I don't believe it, I just won't say it. But if I say it, I believe it. I also reserve the right to change my mind. But today, <laughs> what I, I really think that I'm no longer addicted to, to perfection. Because I feel a, probably an extraordinary obligation uh, to deal uh, with the fact that I am imperfect. And it's through the awareness of my imperfection uh, that I, I grow. Now, I also feel that it, you got to choose the places in which you're willing to be naked. And I'm not going to be totally naked publicly. I will share my personal, but I think my private is between me and God and and my spiritual director or therapist or uh, bishop. And it should be the same with you. I don't think it's, I think it's equally neurotic, if not psychotic, to go around uh, showing how imperfect you are. So I think there is a sense of balance and rhythm about one's own imperfection, and uh, it's equally neurotic to go around talking about how imperfect we are. Now, what I would call for would be a sense of understanding 
in our biblical story are heroes and heroines of our saints, patriarchs, matriarchs, to see how real and believable they are, and for us to become real and believable with one another. Not perfect. They're struggling to become complete and realizing that it's only by the, in our tradition, in our faith, in our commitment, that it's only by the grace of God that we're able to do that. It's not by our own power anyway. It's not by our own accomplishment anyway. And it's not by our initial impression. It's by the grace of God. And if we're really free by the grace of God, then we can be free to make impressions on people by our authenticity, by our willingness to take risks, enter their lives, invite them into ours. It's a tall order. It's safer to wall yourself off and to be superficial. Maybe even preferable, if that's what you want, is to just get through life <clears throat> without making any waves. You remember in that story of the man who was lying by the pool that the only way he got healed is if somebody made waves who would disturb the water. Well, I want to begin to conclude by telling a story <clears throat> uh, one of the worst things that, that happened to me <clears throat> was the best thing that ever happened to me and that was that that most of my early ego development was rested in two primary value structures the first was being popular and the second was being able to take an orange leather ball and put it through an orange hoop with white strings uh, attached to it. I invested most of my identity in being popular, accepted, and acceptable, whatever the cost of that would be. Usually it meant agreement with a peer group. And the second was being able to play basketball. I was pretty good at both of those until I got to college. And so I got to college and I realized that there, the world was larger than Drumright, Oklahoma. I know that must have been shocking to you, <laughs> but what do you think it was to me at 18? And to realize that there were basketball players on scholarship who were as good as I was. <clears throat> And I was there by myself, so I didn't have all of those people running around saying, you are so wonderful. <laughs> Matter of fact, <clears throat> my college coach took the opposite tra track. <laughs> he thought it was uh, his job uh, to puncture any possible pretense that I had brought with me. It was a big job he had. <laughs> he succeeded. The point of the story is that I didn't become a college basketball star. I was me, me. <laughs> it's hard for me to even get the word out of me. <laughs> I was mediocre. And for a long time, it was the coach's fault that I didn't play. 
Now, for a long time, it was because that I broke my ankle. For a long time, there were all kinds of excuses as to why I wasn't a college basketball star. The facts are, I wasn't called to be. We always took a trip, a western swing, it was called, where we would go play the University of Texas, the University of Texas at El Paso, New Mexico, New Mexico State, and UCLA. My sophomore year, we had played 10 games. I'd been in one game thus far against then Lamar Tech. Now, I was a sophomore, and we beat Lamar Tech by about 25 points at home, and they put me in, and I scored a free throw. No, that was to be the only point I scored that year. Came down to play the University of Texas. I didn't play. We beat them. <laughs> by the time we got to play the University of Texas at El Paso, then known as Texas Western, they were a very high-ranking team, and they had a center whose name was Jim Bad News Barnes. <clears throat> the chances of my playing were zero. So I, in some risky desperation, made a bet with my roommate and two other friends on the team that I could put my warm-ups on with nothing underneath And if they would come up with $100, I would do it because there would be no way the coach would ever call on me to go in the game. <laughs> now, working out of the, the structure of if the world gives you lemons, you make lemonade, I was going to find a way to make $100 out of my mediocrity. <laughs> they came up with the money. And so I... I went to the end of the bench dressed only in my warm-ups, and it was a close game. As a matter of fact, any of you know any of the intricacies of college basketball, uh, Don Haskins, who was the coach at the University of Texas at El Paso, had played for Henry Iba, who was our coach, and each of them was famous for playing rigorous half-court man-to-man defenses. But the student, in order to trick the mentor, played a zone defense. Well. I had that, that chronic dis disease called lack of ability, but, you know, where uh, I may not have been able to jump very high, but I was slow. <laughs> One of the things that I could do was shoot a basketball. So when we played against a tight zone defense, uh, Mr. Iva would sometimes ask me to go and try to open up the zone by shooting some long shots. Well, I looked out and saw that they were playing a zone. During the first half, uh, Mr. Iba came down the bench, walking slowly, thinking. <laughs> there I sat, I could do no other. <clears throat> he didn't ask me to go in, luckily. He got as close as two men from me, and he sent in James Cooper, who, by the way, was also from Drumright, Oklahoma. You know, it's unusual that two small towns in one state send 
two players up to play at Oklahoma State. Here's another thing that will uh, make you feel like you've been to a session of uh, we. <laughs> James Cooper's a clergyman. <clears throat> Not a very good one. <laughs> Some would say he's mediocre. <laughs> At halftime, I could not stand my nakedness. I put my shorts back on because I knew in the second half when things got tough, he was going to call upon me. I now can admit publicly I lost $100 and I didn't get to play. Each of us has our own moments of embarrassment about our inadequacy and try to overcompensate for it in some way or another. That's human. It's okay. I understand it. So do I. This is a part of what it means to be human. But what it means to be Christian is to stand through the halls of history with the saints who have been aware of their humanity, who have been willing to offer that to God and receive it back as complete. And what, remember that wonderful statement when Jesus says, you shall, and it's a promise, I think, not a judgment, you shall become complete as our Father in heaven. Rather than saying you must be perfect like God is, to say we shall become complete as our Father in heaven is. That's our promise, that's our hope. We're on our way there, and many of us are going to stub our toes and fall on our backsides before we get there, but we'll heal and we can get up. We have a whole wonderful sacred love story of our people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph and Moses and Pittman, for God's sake, <laughs> who have been called uh, to become more than they would have become had they followed only their own wills. Amen. <laughs>